From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. With the changing landscape of healthcare and new information being learned every day about diseases and treatment, medical education has to adapt as well. How can today's med schools help the next generation of doctors be prepared for what lies ahead? On today's program, we'll hear how Mayo Clinic is transforming medical education for the 21st century from the Executive Dean of the Mayo Clinic School of Medicine. Also on the program, we'll learn how lifestyle choices you make throughout your life can affect your risk of dementia. And we'll hear about diagnosing and treating the heart rhythm problem known as long QT syndrome. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The Mayo Clinic School of Medicine was originally established in Rochester, Minnesota in 1972. It is now ranked among the top 20 medical schools in this country by who else? U.S. News and World Report. Well, earlier this year, Mayo Clinic opened its second four-year medical school, this one in the state of Arizona. Mayo Clinic also trains residents at its Florida campus in Jacksonville. With a rapidly changing climate when it comes to health care, training tomorrow's doctors is more difficult now than ever. Mayo Clinic has been chosen by the Kern Institute to be a part of a national initiative to transform medical education and modernize it for the 21st century. Here to discuss is the Executive Dean for Education at the Mayo Clinic School of Medicine, Dr. Frederick Meyer. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Meyer. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you very much for the invitation. Dr. Meyer, congratulations on your new title. You don't have a lot of free time, do you? I mean, you are an internationally recognized neurosurgeon. You are the father of six children. That's and correct. you're now dean of the Mayo Medical School. Well, uh, the good news is I'm, I'm married to a very lovely and supportive wife who, like... Uh, Let's me do these sort of things. You must be. Now, I know that you have received uh, multiple awards for your teaching teacher of the year on multiple occasions. How is it that that then led to the job of dean of Mayo Medical School? Are you happy with it so far? Yeah, it's been exciting. It's been challenging. Trying to transform and move education forward has taken a certain skill set that I'm learning. Um, on the fly, so to speak. I love this conversation because, um, of course, you went to medical school also, just I, like I the did. kids who are going Recently. to medical school <laughs> now. Yeah, and I'm sure that you're thinking, well, there's nothing that needs to be changed. Why transform medical education? That's right. How can you do better than this? Exactly. <laughs> so why transform medical education? Well, I mean, the, the <laughs> physicians of the future or the physicians of the today need to have new skill sets that Dr. Shaz and I didn't learn. So, for example, you need to understand bioengineering, informatics, uh, biomaterials, robotics, telemedicine. All these knowledge sets are going to influence how healthcare is managed and delivered in the future. It's, it's absolutely true that we didn't even know those words. We didn't even hear those words when we were in medical school, or at least when I was in medical school. So how do you go about doing your job? I mean, how do you identify what could be changed, what needs to be changed, and then how do you go about doing that? All right. So, so basically what we had, we started off with a strategic planning weekend with leaders of the medical school and in the College of Medicine and Science and created a strategic plan based on our current strengths and where we see the future of medicine heading. And that's how you build out a strategic plan. 
So when I say transforming medicine, I'm talking about perhaps a three-year medical school instead of the traditional four-year medical school. I'm talking about adding master's degree programs integrated within medical school as examples. Our students need more global experiences. Our students need more experiences with rural and also inner-city settings to understand the diversity of our country, the effects of economic disparities on health care. There's so much more that our students need to learn. That sounds like you should be adding a year instead of removing a year. How are you going to do all that with less time? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm proud to say that we attract the best students from the country, first of all, so they have great potential to learn. And then we just have to be more organized and more efficient to, and to make sure that what we're delivering is value-added. We've also introduced online or reverse learning. So students are learning, getting learning modules at home, and then coming to class prepared to engage in a discussion of that material. So there's work up front they have to do at home. I think our listeners would like to hear, and and so would I actually, uh, how it is you go about selecting uh, the medical students. I know that you tell us how many applications you get, how many of those you actually take, and how you really decide who's going to be a good medical student and ultimately a good doctor. Yeah, so... So we had about 8,300 applications for 100 positions this year, which makes us the most competitive medical school in the nation. So we have certain bare scholastic entry requirements because medical school is tough. So you have to have the cognitive abilities to incorporate all that information and to evolve into a safe and expert physician. So we have cognitive requirements. But beyond that, we have the humanistic requirements evidence of uh, leadership, altruism, commitment to human uh, need. So we try to incorporate all that and pick those best candidates and offer them entry into the medical school. And they go through an interview process too, right? Right. So they go through a tedious application process. They go through an interview process weekend. Then the top candidates are decided amongst the admissions committee, and subsequently offered admissions. Why is Mayo Medical School so popular? It's popular probably because it's we're at the Mayo Clinic, which is the best medical center in the country, if not the world. So the opportunity to learn from the best clinical physicians and best scientists exists at Mayo Clinic. So that's what attracts the best students to apply to our school. You know, I, I know that we're the, the, the medical care in this country is faced with uh, with several issues. Uh, a couple I want to ask you about, and that, that is, it seems like with the aging population, uh, we need more family physicians and we need more geriatricians. Uh, is, is there anything that you're doing to try to help solve that problem? Yeah, so we, we, we do emphasize primary care clinical rotations as a start. We try to look for a certain percentage of students who are applying who seem to have that concern and interest in primary care, although, as you know, it changes as you go through medical school. But in addition, I would point out that in the next generation, maybe you and I, Tom, telemedicine is going to be hugely important in caring for patients. So we need to also offer new educational paradigms so our students know how to use that technology to provide that extended care. So it's multifactorial. It would seem that uh, medical school for all of these years is, I, I don't know, maybe not changed a lot. I can, ima- I would imagine, I have no idea, but that what you're talking about is quite a dramatic change. Is that right? 
I would say in many ways, yes. In my perfect scenario, you would have medical students graduating, not just with the MD degree, but with a higher, at least master's degree in some focused subspecialty expertise that's going to enhance science, it's going to enhance patient care, delivery of patient care, and so on. Why is that not happening right now? Well, I mean, honestly, I mean, to do that requires a lot of paradigm shifts. It requires funding. It requires building a collaborative teamwork a group of educators who are committed to that. And all those things take time because they are transformative. You know, I know for sure that some things have changed since I went to medical school. And one thing that I know for sure is that the first-year medical students don't all smell like formaldehyde like they did when I went to. <laughs> you know, I think we, we had every day we had anatomy, and we went through the whole body. And you don't do that anymore, do you? Well, they still have cadaver experiences, right? There's still anatomy taught here at Mayo School of Medicine in a very traditional cadaver sense. However, with that being said, I'm very excited about uh, a program we're trying to develop in partnership with radiology using 3D printing to start to teach simulation training and also anatomy. 3D models do not smell like formaldehyde, Dr. Shives. <laughs> and, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with the Executive Dean for Education at the Mayo Clinic School of Medicine, also a neurosurgeon at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Fred Meyer. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more with Dr. Meyer on the future of medical education. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with the Executive Dean for Education of the Mayo Clinic School of Medicine and also a world-renowned neurosurgeon at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Fred Meyer. Dr. Meyer, I know you're relatively new at this job, but what's been the best part so far? The best part for me has been engaging with our students. When I mean students, I actually mean learners. So to back up for a minute, we have to remember we have the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science. And within that, we have four schools, right? We have the medical school. We have the graduate school for resident and fellowship training, which is actually the largest in North America. We have an allied health school program that has 135 programs with 1,600 students. We also have a graduate school, Ph.D. school for 200 students. So in the conglomerate, Mayo Clinic has about 4,000 learners. And the best part of my job has been interacting with these students and understanding what their commitments are and interests are. Are you still able to do neurosurgery? Yeah, I operate twice a week. Do you really? All day? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my Get gosh, you guys. <laughs> you know, aside from the unfortunate lack of snow and ice, having medical school at Arizona and Florida must have some other benefits. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's a very exciting advancement in the School of Medicine. So we inaugurated our Arizona campus this summer with 50 students. So the medical school is doubling in size. The Air Rochester campus, 50 students. Now the Arizona campus, 50 students. So in four years, we'll go from 200 to 400 students in total. So the Arizona campus has a beautiful facility, and the applicants we received and those who we have matriculated are also the best students in the country. So if you look at standard criteria like MCAT and GPA, there's no difference between Rochester and Arizona. They're nearly identical, and they're outstanding. In terms of Florida, we have a program that we're calling the Florida Campus Program. We're in the third and fourth year of medical school, the clinical rotations. Sixteen students can be there for two years. What's beautiful about that is that we have great clinicians and scientists at all three campuses, so students have the opportunity to rotate among all three campuses and Mayo Health System 
to augment their education and clinical experiences. Yeah, that's fabulous. You know, the, the other interesting thing, uh, Fred, that I want, wanted to ask you about, uh, and uh, that, uh, with regard to changes and, and how things have changed, is the fact that there are 50% of the class is women. So for me, it would be twice as hard to get into medical school today as it was how? back in my class. 150 people, I think we had three females. Three women out of and 150. Now, and now it's more than 50%. Yeah, it's about 55% in our entering class are women. That's so a big how change. How come 55? Yeah. Yeah, that's discrimination, <laughs> isn't no, it? No, it just happened to happen that way. But I, I'm married to a physician. i got to watch my step. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about healthcare in general, um, medical school aside, there's so much uh, politically and nationwide that is going into changing health care. How does medical school address that? Yeah, so we have a curriculum called the Science of Healthcare Delivery, mm-hmm. which is designed to teach students about healthcare challenges. Simplistically, how do you deliver the best health care to a growing population, in my mind, with diminishing resources? I mean, that's the national challenge, right? So we're trying to educate our students in that complex paradigm about how to manage it best to provide good patient care. And, and obviously, one of the biggest issues is cost. Um, and, and what do you do? How do you help train a young physician to uh, not only take good care of people, but also try to reduce the cost? Because that's the, the biggest issue facing our system, don't you yeah. think? Well, there's, there's several issues. But in terms of the cost, right now, our medical school is one of the least expensive private medical schools in the country. It's highly supported by Mayo Clinic. And our students graduate with the lowest debt in the country right now. And what is the average debt? The average debt's about sixty, seventy thousand dollars. And overall, and all the med- it's like two hundred. No, that's I'm talking about Mayo. Clinic. No, I know, yeah. but the average, the national much, average, much higher than that. Yeah. And when I say sixty to seventy thousand, that may be a slight over, overestimate, but it includes college costs or or bills due. Mm-hmm. So in fact, uh, our students. And one of the nice things about that, back to your earlier question is there should not be that urge to go into a subspecialty to make money and avoid primary care because Mm -hmm. they're leaving Mayo School of Medicine without that much debt. We also have a wonderful scholastic financial support system to help our students get through medical school. What percentage of the students who graduate from Mayo end up in family care, family medicine? Um, Not as much as we would like, about 15%. Now, isn't it, you know, very difficult for these kids coming out of medical school, not only because of the amount of the debt, but the fact that when I went to school and had to get loans to do it, um, it was a federally funded loan, 2 or 3%. Now the loans are at 6 7 8%, which Correct. doesn't make any sense to me. We're trying to help these kids, but we're charging them, charging them an arm and a leg interest-wise. Yeah, totally true. Now, we have a great financial advising or advisor that helps our medical students understand and negotiate all those issues. But if I might, though, I want to get back to you said before one of the challenges of a medical student. And I just want to point out that one of the big challenges we have nationally is not enough residency training positions for all the medical students graduating from medical oh, really? schools across the country. So what I mean is that we have nationally we have a lot of medical students. There are not enough residency to train those students once graduation. So what happens to them? You know, they want to go into orthopedics and there isn't a spot available. Do they then go into family practice and well, try again later? Or but what, even, what? even family practice, there's not enough. So they go into a holding oh. pattern. They go into a lab. They do sub-internship type of approaches and eventually get into a residency program. But that's a national problem. Congress 
needs to fund more postgraduate medical education positions, residency programs. Yeah, obviously. And you think we'll get that done? <laughs> in my lifetime <laughs> I am not common yeah, finally uh, let's talk about you said as you were, we were getting started there's some university collaboration going on um, why is that I mean obviously collaboration is good but why is that happening well when you collaborate with universities you have a lot more opportunity for sort of scientific educational programs so we have a strong relationship with Arizona State University there's alliance between Mayo Clinic in ASU, but we're also exploring opportunities, let's say, with University of Illinois Urban-Champaign. That's a top 10 engineering school. ASU is a top innovative uh, college or university in the country. So these type of all, uh, extra educational opportunities offer a lot of uh, potential for our students to learn. You know, other thing, uh, Fred, I want to ask you about is it seems like the medical schools, and particularly here at Mayo, are paying more attention to the health and well-being of the students. <laughs> I mean, I know that when, when the Mayo medical like students sleep? come, yeah, like <laughs> you do yoga and you meditate and you talk to each other, and it, it's not. You know, when I went to medical school. We sat there, and the dean came in, and he said, look to your left, look to your right. One of you won't be here next year. And I get the impression that if you're a Mayo medical student, and probably most places around the country, they're there to actually help you and make sure you succeed. Totally different. Is that better or worse well, in your it, estimation? It sounds better to me. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, the problem is we do have a crisis in the country. The suicide rate, the suicide rate for physicians is, what, 10 times the population. Hmm. And there are suicides in medical school and in residency. So at Mayo, we have a very, very aggressive and strong student wellness program for all our learners to try to make sure we don't experience that type of adverse event. And is it partly also we know that physician burnout is a big problem? Do you think that what you're doing and how you're helping the medical students, that you're helping train them to prevent burnout later on in life? I would say yes. So what change do you want to make next? The next change is to create a three-year medical school program to shorten the years that a student spends after college learning how to be an expert physician. That will be the best next big advance for us. All right. I hope you get it done. Thank you. We've been talking with the executive dean of the Mayo, school, Mayo Clinic School of Medicine and also a neurosurgeon at Mayo, Dr. Fred Meyer. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, my pleasure. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear how lifestyle choices you make throughout your life can decrease your risk of dementia. As long as they're healthy. Right. And later on in the program, diagnosing and treating the heart rhythm problem known as long QT syndrome. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Here's mom and dad's assignment in the new school year. Turn off the screens and turn on the stove to make family meals. Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaratsky says, Anytime that you can enjoy a meal with someone, I would encourage you to do so. It has benefits not only for kids, but adults as well. Zaraski says cooking in your own kitchen gives you more control over ingredients and portion sizes. And so if you have more control over the food and the portion, you're likely going to consume less calories and more nutritious foods. Studies show family mealtime can offer social benefits too, including reducing the chance children will engage in risky behavior. So this school year, make time to gather together. It may slow the pace of your meal. It might bring a different appreciation to the meal, and 
it creates a social interaction that's probably beneficial for everyone. And now let's talk about eczema. It's an itchy skin condition often worsened by a bacterial infection. An eczema bleach bath can kill bacteria on the skin, reducing itching, redness, and scaling. This is most effective when combined with other eczema treatments such as medication and moisturizer. So if properly diluted and used as directed, a bleach bath is safe for children and adults. Now for best results, Add one half cup of bleach to a 40 gallon bathtub filled to the overflow holes with warm water so it's very diluted. Use household bleach, not concentrated bleach. Soak from the neck down or just the affected areas of skin for about 10 minutes. Rinse if your skin doesn't tolerate the bleach bath well. Gently pat dry with a towel. Immediately apply moisturizer generously and do this no more than three times a week. You might get dry skin if you use too much bleach or take bleach baths too often. If your skin is cracked or very dry, any bath, including a bleach bath, might be painful. Talk to your doctor before trying any eczema bleach bath. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the World Health Organization, nearly 50 million people around the world suffer from dementia. That is, loss of memory and other mental faculties. And almost 10 million new cases of dementia are diagnosed every year. So this is a serious problem that's not going away. Dementia... It really isn't a specific disease, but rather it describes a group of symptoms affecting memory, thinking, and your social interaction, social abilities. And these symptoms taken together are severe enough to interfere with daily living. But we do have some positive, a positive way we can well, look at this. I'm glad you do, because we need it. <laughs> Lifestyle choices throughout your life may help you cut your risk for dementia. Here to discuss dementia risk is Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. David Knopman. Welcome back to the program. It's nice to see you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Knopman, good to have you on the program, especially when it seems like... There's some good news about dementia. We know that uh, lifestyle has uh, lifestyle choices have a lot to do with with your health, and now there's pretty good evidence, or maybe it's not new evidence, that lifestyle choices affect whether or not you're going to develop dementia. Well, that's right, and there are a number of uh, different activities or diseases, the activities to uh, partake in or avoid and uh, diseases to avoid that uh, make a difference in terms of dementia risk. Interestingly, the main ones are... the same ones that affect cardiovascular health, avoiding diabetes, avoiding hypertension, avoiding hypercholesterolemia, uh, uh, not smoking, and then on the positive side, um, exercising, uh, eating uh, prudently, and avoiding obesity. And these that are called the Simple 7 by the American Heart Association have been shown to uh, uh, improve uh, cognitive health in later life. Uh, But these are things that really have to be adhered to beginning in early life or or at least uh, in in, uh, young adulthood and and by midlife. Uh, Whether it makes a difference if you didn't do those things in uh, midlife to start doing them in late life makes it, whether it makes a difference or not, isn't clear. But 
avoiding, for example, avoiding diabetes and hypertension has a really big impact on reducing the rate of dementia in later life. Because, uh, so what's good for your heart is good for your head. Well, what's good for your heart is good for your cerebral blood vessels as well, and therefore good for your head. Exactly. So, and it sounds like it has to do with, with blood flow, blood supply. Well, it has to do with blood vessels. I think it has to do with the health of, of blood vessels. Uh, I don't think it's just a blood flow problem. Uh, it's hypertension and diabetes damage the inside lining of blood vessels, the endothelium, and that in turn leads to metabolic changes and or changes in the blood vessels that have pathologic uh, significance. One of the first items that is on this, uh, what they've got it broken down into early life, midlife, but the early life one is education. Yes. Was how this does, the article in Lancet that you're referring to? Yeah. How, yeah. how yeah. does education make any difference? Well, education turns out to have a huge impact on later life cognition, and there are numerous studies that have uh, looked at this. Uh, it happens to be something I'm very interested in myself uh, uh, in, in our um, research um, people who are better educated, and it, it, it sounds um, maybe biased, but it, it, this is just the way the biology looks, is people who are better educated have brains that have more nerve cells or more synapses, and it makes connections, them, synapses, uh, connections, connections yep. between nerve cells, sorry, um, it, it makes them better able to live with damage that accrues from disease or from age compared to people who had lower educational attainment. It's a very strong and consistent uh, effect that's seen in all populations. Is this why we're often told that we should try to do puzzles and things like that throughout our life? Or should I, you know, should we all be going back to college when we're in our 40s and 50s and 60s? <laughs> well, it, it probably is much more complex. And education is a proxy, means it stands for uh, good uh, childhood health and probably good parenting, but also it does reflect um, using the brain and um, and continuing to use the brain through one's entire adult life is very important. Um, but I think that the most, un- well, the data suggests that the most important effect uh, effects uh, occur by, by young adulthood. Um, but you're not suggesting that it's too late to, to no, change your no, lifestyle that's later right. on. Yeah. Right. And now, when we think of dementia, most of us uh, immediately think of Alzheimer's disease, but there, there are different kinds of dementia, right? That's right. So dementia, I, I more or less like the way you said it when you uh, introduced the topic. Dementia is a syndrome that means that a person has difficulties in daily life on cognitive grounds. And that can be due to many different causes. Unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever, it's a reality that many people use the word Alzheimer's disease synonymously with dementia. And that's a mistake for several reasons, because as you said, there are many different causes of dementia in our lingo, many different etiologies of dementia, such as cerebrovascular disease, which is probably what we were talking about with these risk factors. That means the blood vessels that feed the brain. Yeah, Yeah. stroke. Um, But um, uh, Alzheimer's disease is a specific disease uh, 
And there are many of us who would rather that term be applied only to people who in whom that specific cause is proved. But most people use the word Alzheimer's disease synonymously with dementia, and that can get you in trouble in certain conversations. But you said that specific cause uh, for Alzheimer's. We don't really know what causes Alzheimer's, right? Or are you talking oh, no. about the well, changes in the brain? Well, we actually know that- a lot about the biochemistry of it. We, uh, we don't know exactly why it starts in most cases. We do know in some where it's genetic, but that's a very, it's a relatively small fraction. But we know a lot about the biochemistry, and I do need to say that over the last 10 years, there's been a real sea change in our understanding of Alzheimer's disease because of the availability, especially of imaging, uh, PET scanning biomarkers where we can look at the disease in real time in living people and understand what's going on. Um, and, uh, and it's been a real game changer as far as the field is concerned. How are depression and social isolation related to this conversation? Uh, well, uh, uh, really much more generally, and those are very important. In people who are at risk for cognitive impairment, so we're mostly talking about people in later life, someone who's depressed is going to have greater cognitive difficulties even if they don't have any brain disease, just because they have difficulties with concentrating, they have problems with mental focus, they're easily distracted. And if you then couple that with uh, even a mild dementia due to Alzheimer's or due to stroke, it's going to make their symptoms all that worse. Social isolation um, is really also very important, especially for people who are in the beginning stages of the disease, because it ex- it makes the symptoms worse. So what I tell people and tell families and tell patients, not only is to be uh, keep yourself mentally stimulated and physically active, but avoid social isolation and and do go for things that 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 are socially engaging. That helps the brain. It helps mood. It helps social interactions. All right. So I have some friends. Be good to your relatives, Tracy, because you <laughs> you, you want to have somebody to interact with in your life. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Knopman. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about treatment for the heart rhythm problem, Long QT Syndrome. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Long QT Syndrome is a, it's a heart rhythm problem that can cause fast, chaotic, out-of-control heartbeats. And these rapid heartbeats can trigger fainting spells, seizures, or in some cases, if it lasts long enough, it can actually cause someone to die. The good news is, when diagnosed, treatments for long QT syndrome are incredibly effective. Here to discuss treatment for long QT syndrome is Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Michael Ackerman. Dr. Ackerman is director of Mayo Clinic's Long QT Syndrome Genetic Heart Rhythm Clinic. Holy smokes. <laughs> you got a ma- welcome, yeah, welcome back to the program, Dr. Ackerman. <laughs> well, thanks for having me back. It's a treat to be here. So it's an interesting uh, term, interesting name, long QT syndrome. And for most of our listeners, and even me, I haven't gone to medical school so many years ago, it, it doesn't mean much. Tell us what what Q, long QT syndrome means to you. Yeah. How do you explain well, that? Well, long QT syndrome is a genetic and sometimes non-genetic uh, heart rhythm disorder. So the QT comes from a feature on the 12-lead electrocardiogram, the ECG or the EKG, as people know of it. And that QT interval 
example, is a measurement of time, a measurement of time of how long it's taking the heart to electrically recharge itself to get ready for the next beat. And when it's taking longer than normal or the heart is recharging itself inefficiently or chaotically, then we assign the word long QT to it. And usually when we call it long QT syndrome, that's to suggest that we're dealing with the potentially genetic inherited version of the disorder. Now, the QT interval itself, if it's long, uh, doesn't have to matter at all. But if there's ever a situation where something catches the heart off guard while it's recharging itself, it can trip up the heart's electrical system and have the person's heart go into a very dangerous, fast heart rhythm that if it aborts on its own quickly, then they will have just fainted suddenly, but they will have woken back up. If it lasts 30 to 60 to 90 seconds, they will have fainted 60 seconds ago, then started to have a full-body generalized seizure because then the head, the brain, become electrically irritated, but then they wake back up. Um, the tragedy occurs was, is when the heart's not restoring order on its own, and the only thing that will restore order is electrical aversion, cardioversion, somebody defibrillating the patient, a first responder, to reset the heart's electrical system. And so when caught, like you mentioned, um, this disease, this syndrome that affects about 1 in 2,000 individuals is incredibly treatable. Hmm. One in 2,000, but yeah. more common than, than most of us ever thought. Yeah, and that may be an underestimate. Uh, we really don't know its true frequency, but it's th- probably the most common genetic heart rhythm disorder that we have. I remember the last time that you were on, you explained that sometimes uh, if someone drowns suddenly or if there's a car crash, that might be something like this happens, and we don't ever know that it was a heart problem that caused it. Yeah, those are sort of the warning signs that we now are learning as physicians to ask about. So unexplained tragedies, unexplained car accidents, unexplained drownings, all of these could be heralding the presence of this condition, which when they would have done an autopsy or if an autopsy would have been done, the autopsy would have been stone cold normal because Mm -hmm. there are no features anatomically that says or shows that the long QT heart is here. So uh, obviously, if you if you have this, you would want to know about it. But how would you ever find out if you are one of those two thousand people? Yeah, the right now the way we discover its presence, unfortunately, is after the first warning, after the first symptom. We currently are not screening for this condition. Hopefully, that will change because we are really good at preventing the second death from ever occurring in a family when it's been discovered. Or if the the way the long QT syndrome was discovered was out of the tragedy of somebody's sudden death, and then we find other family members with it, those other family members will not die from it. Our real challenge is finding and identifying the family before the first death has occurred. And how do you do that? (laughs) There's two ways right now. One is increasing warning sign recognition. So one is for families to be aware of the warning signs, for for the front lines physicians and nurses and school nurses to be aware of the warning signs so that we don't blow off a concerning faint. 
so that when there's been a feint that occurred 90 meters into the 100-meter dash of the track meet, that's not disregarded, that there's some sort of drill that gets done with the penalty box feint, just like we have drills that are being done when there's the concern of a concussion Mm -hmm. on the field, that until you have that cleared, you are in a penalty box. And I think we need to adopt the same mindset with certain kinds of warning feints, warning seizures, not the ordinary seizure or the ordinary feint. You know, I call it the vanilla feint. I got up too quickly. The room got Mm -hmm. lightheaded. I got lightheaded. The room went spinning on me and I got hot and bothered and I drifted down. That's not the danger feint of long QT syndrome. The long QT warning feint is the, it came out of nowhere with no forewarning and bam, I collapsed uh, in the middle of exertion or after a sudden startle or an alarm sounded. And that kind of instantaneous feint is an indicator. So we either get better at warning sign recognition and acting on warning signs to test for the possibility of this disease, or the other way, and the only other way to discover the rest of long QT syndrome is an intentional screening program. Is that the Alive Core? Is that, that the Alive could Core be, part of that it? That could be the Alive Core. So we have, uh, Mayo Clinic has recently entered into a relationship with Alive Core, and we have another relationship with a company based out of Minnesota, uh, Blue Ox Health Corporation, where Blue Ox Health, we're working on an infant QT meter, and with Alive Core, we're working on a QT meter for everyone else. So with the idea that we would not have to be doing the ECG to screen athletes or screen artists, that instead of doing the ECG that comes with all of its baggage, the only thing that we're screening for is the QT interval and the possibility of a QT problem called long QT syndrome. So we're really excited about the possibility that one day we may be able to screen effectively for this condition. And when we screen it and find it, the tragedy of death will not happen. Well, and then because once, if you find it in someone, you can, the whole family then can get checked. Exactly. All right. You mentioned that if you do discover this and di- make the diagnosis, it's incredibly easy to treat or the treatment is incredibly yeah. effective. What is the treatment? It's simple. It's medicine. It's a, a medicine that's been around forever called a beta blocker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. if the beta blocker isn't strong enough, then we have a, a pretty nifty uh, surgery. It's essentially an armpit surgery called left cardiac sympathetic denervation. And if that's not enough, or if the disease is um, dangerous enough or shows the telltale signs of imminent sudden death risk, then we counter that risk with an implantable defibrillator. And so we can tailor the therapy to the behavior of the disease in that person. It's really personalized, tailored medicine where we size up the risk, the threat, and then we dial in the proportionate countermeasures for the patient and his or her version of their long QT syndrome. All right, unexplained fainting spell or seizure ought to be checked out. It should be checked out. Long QT, long QT syndrome with one of the world's experts, Dr. Michael Ackerman. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. 
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.